I'm Dan Heath, and this is Choiceology. Has there ever been any close calls because somebody wasn't paying attention? Yeah, actually, a coworker just got in a collision the other day from here uh, with another bike because they were both trying to get on, but sharing with pedestrians is no fun either. We're on the street in a typical North American city at a spot where cars and bikes and pedestrians converge, and things don't always go smoothly. The reason we're here? To try a little experiment in traffic management. But we're not talking about signs or whistles or police handing out tickets. This experiment will barely be noticeable. We aim to show that small changes can make big and positive differences. On bike paths, yes, but also in things like street crime and organ donation. It might be counterintuitive, but all of these things are connected by subtle, sometimes invisible structures. Structures that surround you and have a surprising influence over how you move through the world. By the end of the episode, you'll start to notice them everywhere. This is Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. It's a show that reveals hidden psychological forces, forces that affect the way you make decisions about everything from the route you take to work in the morning to how fast you drive to how you spend your money. It's about understanding human behavior, avoiding expensive mistakes, and making the best choices for your future. Before we get the results from our little test and traffic management, let's travel to a different city for an experiment that rose from the ashes of social unrest. It's 2011, August. Many parts of London are on fire. The city is experiencing the worst riots in decades. So across the capital, uh, in Hackney, uh, in Woolwich, um, in North London, in South London, across the capital we saw horrendous scenes of properties being burnt down, looted. Um, And this was, it was a sort of free-for-all. People went crazy, people went mad, young people in particular. This is Tara Austin. I am Creative Strategy Director for Ogilvy Change. So why were there riots in the streets? Well, it started as perceived injustice. In the summer of 2011, the police shot dead uh, a young man in North London. The young man was suspected of gang ties and carrying a handgun, but it was perceived by many in London as a racially motivated shooting. At the time, this one shooting triggered a series of events where young people in North London um, started to fight with the police. And that, in turn, triggered some copycat behavior across the capital. It quickly spiraled out of control. It became a series of riots. It was a scary, scary moment. This is Zafar Awan. I was the owner of Cell Phone City at the time of the riots. And these lads just went from shop to shop. They then started to set buildings alight. The pub was burned down. And then around the whole of the square, uh, went into the bank and, you know, anything that they could find. Um, they just, you know, they were free to do whatever they wanted. By the time it was over, some estimates pegged the cost of the riots at around $400 million. 
Many Londoners were wondering how things had gone so wrong, why people would destroy their own neighborhoods. Tara Austin was thinking about how this kind of violence and damage might be prevented in the future. I think everyone in London had been very affected by what happened. It didn't make sense that people were kind of rioting on their own doorsteps. It was quite a troubling time. And this is when Tara gained some insight from a strange place, a food industry magazine. I was reading The Grocer magazine and the editor of The Grocer made an interesting point and something I'd never considered before, which was that after the riots, that the government needed to relax the planning laws in order to um, allow shopkeepers to put up shutters to defend their properties. And for the first time, thought about shop shutters, which are obviously ubiquitous, they're all around us, and I'd never considered them before. So... You know those shutters you see in some big cities, metal rolling doors that shopkeepers pull down after they close to keep the shop windows secure? They seem like a good idea. But think about the message they're sending to people who walk by. This neighborhood isn't very safe. It's a visible signal of the presence of crime, so much like we often talk about the broken windows theory from New York, where um, uh, you know one broken window on a block was the, the signal that the block was effectively lawless. Similarly, Shutters are a visible signal of the presence of crime and whether you um, consciously think so about So Tara got to thinking. Shutters are good for security, but they send a bad signal to the community. Could you get the extra security without sending the bad signal? Or even better, could you figure out how to send a positive signal? She was on the verge of an important insight, and her breakthrough was sparked by the work of a local artist. There was an artist by the name of Ben Ein. He'd been spray painting the shutters along the seafront in these very jolly, lovely colours with big letters on them. He's quite a famous artist. And so he'd been painting shop security shutters and making them street art. Tara started to see that shutters weren't just tools of security. They were blank canvases. Because they were relatively flat media surfaces and people like Ben Ein were using them to create street art, well, couldn't they carry another message, something that would, you know, subconsciously perhaps deter people from ever rioting again? Now, let's just take a moment to appreciate how weird this idea is. You've got these metal security doors that roll down to keep burglars out. And Tara Austin is saying, no, actually, they're billboards for deterring potential rioters. These shutters can send a message. But what kind of message should it be exactly? For the answer, she turned to science. So in the 1940s, there was an ethnographist called Conrad Lorenz. Ethnography is the the study of human behavior. And he posited something called the baby schema. You know the baby schema, even if you've never heard of it before. It's basically the set of facial features that makes us say, aww. So it's round cheeks, big eyes, sort of small features, uh, and a very round, round face. And this we recognize as being a, a baby, an infant, and we see it in, in babies, but we see it in animals. So the pug dog has high baby schema. The, um, the mini car in the UK has high baby schema. Um, anything that looks a little bit like a kind of cute face has high baby schema. So when we perceive something with these particular kinds of proportions, it stimulates a part of the brain that encourages nurturing behavior. So the baby schema makes us care. It triggers our nurturing instincts. And this is the epiphany moment. 
Austin puts together the baby schema with the security shutters. What could we paint on these shop security shutters that could, you know, really subvert their meaning and, you know, help them encourage greater social cohesion? What could do that to the maximum degree? Well, babies were it. Tara and her team at Ogilvy Change knew the science behind the baby schema, how it would encourage this nurturing behavior and a caring response in people. But they also wanted to find a way to connect their project directly to the community. And Woolwich had been very badly affected by the riots. Using local babies was really important to us to encourage the community to really reflect on itself and the future of that community. We don't want people to reflect particularly on the, the babies in a very conscious way, but just to, to see them, to perceive them, and um, for it to make a difference to how they felt uh, when they were in that place in, in Woolwich. So the first step was, can we convince local shopkeepers in the neighborhood of Woolwich to let us paint babies on their security shutters? This was not an easy sell. I mean, what if the babies attract vandals rather than repel them? But they found one business owner brave enough to take the gamble, our phone shop owner, Zafar Awan. I thought it was a, a, an initiative that could only help. It wasn't going to be something that would solve the problem, uh, but it was something that would involve the community because the, the pictures were of local children. He just loved um, the thinking, using psychology in this way. And, um, and so we painted his shutter first. I remember the night when we were actually doing it because it had to be done during the night. Yeah, and we had a crowd of people watching the artist actually go through. And this is, you know, middle of the night, we're looking at about two or three o'clock in the morning. Um, and we had sort of floodlights on. And then and all of a sudden the police turned up. <laughs> and so they thought that somebody was actually um, just, you know, putting graffiti on a shop and, you know, they wanted to find out. Well, obviously we told them who we were, so that it was okay in the end, yeah. On my window right in front of you, you can see a smiling um, African uh, child. Uh, his name is Max. Yeah, uh, He was three at the time. And uh, then you've got uh, three or four, as you can see in front of you, the other shutters as well. And uh, one, of the, one of the windows has got three children on it. Another one's got one. And they're all of different races and all very happy, smiling children. If you want to get a look, I've included some links to photos of the shutters in the show notes. So, Woolwich has changed since those fateful riots of 2011. But did this modest experiment, painting faces of neighborhood babies on shop shutters, did it make any difference? We found, um, after the experiment, that antisocial behavior had reduced in the area. We've been working with a man called Keith Deere from Oxford University and he partnered with police to look at the data that was available five years on this year and that research has suggested that there's been around a 24% reduction in antisocial behavior and crime in, in the area. Now to be fair, there are a lot of factors that contribute to crime rates. But even if you tighten up the analysis, the numbers are still pretty impressive. At the very least, because there are a lot of contributing factors towards crime in any one place, um, we can say that versus a control nearby, the next street over, if you like, um, that there's been a reduction of 10% versus that control. 
So while it's difficult to completely separate out the effects of these murals, Tar Austin and Zafar Awan believe it has made a real difference. Oh yes, I, th- I think the, 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 the whole area is much safer than it used to be, certainly when we moved in initially. And has Zafar been vandalized since? No. no. Tara and her team at Ogilvy Change had enough success with this small project that they're now expanding into another neighborhood on the other side of London. Now, let's be clear here. We're not suggesting that the world is one coat of paint away from solving the problem of violence. This is in no way a universal fix for crime. But it's precisely because crime is such a complicated, multivariate issue that it's so surprising that painting a baby on a shutter did anything to move the needle. And yet it did. Tara feels strongly that she's on to something that could make a real difference, not just in London, but in any city where vandalism and crime are an issue. It's queuing, uh, subconsciously queuing uh, the, the presence of a uh, human hand, some care, some love that has invested in that area and is saying to people, you're welcome here. This is a good place. Tara Austin is the creative strategy director for Ogilvy Change, an agency which uses behavioral science to help change behavior in areas of business, public policy, as well as for social good. Now, what do these crime-preventing babies have to do with bike traffic or your bank account? Let's go back to that city intersection, the one where we started our own little experiment at the beginning of the episode. It's a tricky spot where cyclists and pedestrians converge near a busy intersection with a lot of car traffic. So let me try to paint a mental picture of this corner of confusion. Picture in your head a capital letter K. So that three point where the lines come together, that's the trouble spot. And the straight up and down line, that's a street. Cars going, bikes, pedestrians. The top diagonal line in the K, that's a bike path. It slopes downhill and it converges on that trouble spot. And then many bicyclists need to do an abrupt U-turn just at that spot so they can keep continuing downhill on the bottom diagonal in the K. And that spot... A trouble spot is precisely where pedestrians are arriving from crosswalks from two different directions. So even if you can't really imagine this, just trust me, this is a mess. So we have a hot spot for collisions. We wanted to see if we could make a very small change that might make the whole thing safer. So first, we wanted to get some impressions from the people who use this intersection. But I walk through this intersection almost every day and I have seen people, I saw a guy get hit. I've seen a couple of people like have close calls here. <laughs> Luckily, I haven't myself, but it's pretty. It's a pretty sketchy intersection. That was another close call. And here, it's because the pedestrian didn't even look up to see if it was a walking light. So clearly, a pretty dodgy intersection. Here's the experiment. This is all we did. We unrolled a bit of yellow duct tape. We ran a strip along the sidewalk to divide the bike U-turn zone from the pedestrian area. We didn't add any signs saying, you must do this, just a line of tape on the sidewalk. See if people could share the road. (laughs) 
so far, everyone is going on the proper side of their lines. We caught up with some of the cyclists to see if they even noticed the tape. I ride this route every day for a few years, and uh, I was oblivious to the tape this morning. Do you think something like that could be helpful? Absolutely, 100%. So did it work? Well, this is very unscientific, but... 80% of the people we observed stayed naturally on their side of the line. It was a big change in behavior from before the experiment began, and all it took was a little bit of duct tape. In both of the examples you've heard so far, the, the babies painted on shop shutters, the sidewalk bike path experiment, a concept of behavioral economics was applied. It's known as a nudge. The term nudge comes from a 2008 book of the same name by law professor Cass Sunstein and the behavioral economist Richard Thaler, who won the Nobel Prize in economics in 2017 for his work in the area. Nudge discusses the countless small tweaks that can influence the choices we make. Here's an example. In Austria, over 90% of the citizens are registered organ donors. In Germany, fewer than 15% are. Why is that? Are there vast differences in the cultures? Are Austrians more naturally generous? No. In Germany, you have to opt in to be a donor. In Austria, you're opted in by default and you can opt out if you'd rather not. That's a nudge. It's amazing that something so subtle and simple and low cost could have such a huge impact. But it's true. And nudges are being used by individuals and businesses and governments all over the world to affect real change. My name is Sille Krokow. I'm a behavioral design nudge expert. Yes, you heard that right. She just called herself a nudge expert. Often the people who create and design these nudges are referred to as choice architects. And Sille Krokow is one of them. Basically, we're influenced by nudges everywhere we go. So, for example, the white lines on the, uh, on the road, nudging me to stay on the right side of the road. The right lines when I'm parking, uh, the set of lights that tells me to stop, and so forth. So basically, everywhere we go and everything we interact with is what we call choice architecture. And choice architecture is a combination of different nudges that helps us to navigate in our society. So instead of placing restrictions or changing economic incentives, nudges influence behavior by changing how choices are presented in the environment. And here's the reason why nudges are so effective at changing behavior, especially compared to other approaches. Because we make the right decisions, the easy ones. That's a key point. They make the right decisions, the easy ones. Or to put it another way, as a choice architect, you want to get laziness on your side. And to see how to do that, you've got to understand one of the most fundamental findings of modern psychology, which is that we have two different systems in our brain the reflective system, and the automatic system. The reflective system is slow, thoughtful, deliberative. The automatic system is faster, more like autopilot, reacting in the moment. So the reflective system decides, I'm going to drive over to Brian's house. That's a conscious thought process. But then when you're driving, you might do that thing where you suddenly come to and realize you can't remember the last five miles of the road. That's the automatic system at work. The trouble comes when these two systems 
clash. The reflective system decides, I want to go on a diet and lose some weight. But then we find ourselves ordering a slab of cheesecake at a restaurant for dessert. We succumb to the cravings of the automatic system. And that's why nudges are often targeted squarely at the automatic system. When you work with nudging, you're basically trying to design for the automatic thinking. Because we have plenty of good solutions for the reflective thinking. We have educational programs. We have the internet providing you with all kind of knowledge. But what we don't have is good choice architecture. So surroundings in decision-making moments that makes it easy for the unconscious processes to follow our long-term goals like creating a savings account. Because what happens a lot of the time is that we reflectively say, okay, well, I want to start saving for the future because I want to be able to have a good life when I grow old. But then it's Christmas and then we need to buy a present and then it's spring and then we need to go on an Easter holiday and so forth and so forth. So that ambition of start saving for the future never gets translated into an actual action. And that's where nudges come in, because they can help us uh, succeed despite of our automatic behaviors and unconscious processes. So how can we nudge ourselves to save more for retirement? Think about that organ donation study. There's a huge power in default options. And in fact, the people who set up retirement plans for big companies have found exactly the same thing. They increasingly use three defaults. One, they auto-enroll employees into retirement savings plans. The employees can always opt out if they want to. Two, the employees are often auto-invested into a diversified mix of funds or into what's called a target date fund, which divides up their portfolio into a mix of stocks and bonds determined by when they're going to retire. The point being that they don't have to stress out about constructing a portfolio. Three, the plan may even auto-escalate, meaning that your contribution to your account goes up automatically over time. Maybe it's 3% this year and 4% next year. Auto-enroll, auto-invest, auto-escalate. Nudge, nudge, nudge. Does it work? like gangbusters. Just the auto-enrollment feature alone increases employee participation by almost 50%. When you channel laziness, you can accomplish anything. Silla Krokow's favorite nudges are ones we've all encountered, and like our bike path experiment, they're designed to prevent accidents. In many cases, they save lives. Just simple things like, for example, the, um, the countdown on the set of lights which reduces the amount of people who cross on red lights and therefore the amount of people who get killed in accidents. To me, that's such a simple uh, image, giving us feedback on time, and it has such a huge impact. So to me, what I really, really love and what I look at when, I, when I'm in my nerdy mode is road design. Just like the little rumple stripes on the side of the road, which prevents us because it wakes our reflective thinking when we are driving in automatic mode. So it prevents us from crashing into the side. Those things are so easy to understand and it's so tangible, it's so simple and efficient. So to me, that's what it's all about, creating those super simple uh, solutions. There are many ways you can take advantage of nudges in your personal life. If you're cutting back spending, Leave your credit cards at home and carry cash. 
Studies show people who do are more frugal. If you're cutting back on sweets, move your candy stash to the far end of the house. One study found that when secretaries were given a bowl of chocolates, they ate twice as many when the bowl was on their desk as opposed to a filing cabinet just six feet away. Of course, your smartest option is to throw out the sweets entirely, but that's a bit more like a shove than a nudge. So we want to do the right thing. The good intentions are there and are really, really there is my experience. We just have to make it easy for us to succeed and easy in a different way that we have been doing so far. Scylla Krokow is a behavioral design and nudge expert. She's also a founder of an organization called Krokow, which does applied behavioral science. So hopefully now you have a sense of some of the ways that nudges affect public policy, neighborhood safety, even your own bottom line. And I bet you're going to start seeing nudges wherever you go. I've started wondering, am I being nudged right now? Nudges on the street, nudges online, nudges at the supermarket, nudges at restaurants, nudges at school, nudges at the airport. This has been Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. If you'd like to know even more about Nudge's behavioral design and choice architecture, I've put a link to bonus materials in the episode show notes, which you can find on your device right now. If you've enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe there too or anywhere else you listen. It's free, and if you subscribe, you'll never miss an episode. Next time on Choiceology, another hidden force that may be influencing the way you make decisions around value and risk, whether it's on the golf course, in the classroom, or in your investment portfolio. I'm Dan Heath. Talk to you next time. All expressions of opinion are subject to change without notice in reaction to shifting market conditions. Data contained herein from third-party providers is obtained from what are considered reliable sources. However, its accuracy, completeness, or reliability cannot be guaranteed. Target date funds are subject to market volatility and risks associated with the underlying investments. Risks include exposure to international and emerging markets, small company and sector equity securities, and fixed income securities subject to changes in inflation, market valuations, liquidity, prepayments, and early redemption. Target date funds asset allocations are subject to change over time in accordance with each fund's prospectus. The values of target date funds will fluctuate up to and after the target dates. There is no guarantee the funds will provide adequate income at or through retirement. Target date funds are built for investors who expect to start gradual withdrawals of fund assets on the target date to begin covering expenses in retirement. The principal value of the funds is not guaranteed at any time. Also, please note that the target date represents an approximate date when investors may plan to begin withdrawing from the fund.